I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hang Out in the Holy Land, Land Grant Holy Land's flagship podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Josh Dooley, and the opening is going to be a little bit different today. Gene Ross is not able to join us, so we have super sub extraordinaire and uh, general multimedia mogul, Matt Tamanini. He's one of our editors here. Um, you can find him all over our site. He has got the LGA, LGHL Uncut podcast. He jumps in on a bunch of these. Matt has joined me before. I always appreciate his time. So, Matt, uh, thanks for joining me, man. How's it going? I'm doing great. I feel like I'm like up for sixth man of the year or something. The first guy off the bench, and like Nate Robinson win that a couple times. So I feel like I feel like I'm the Nate Robinson of uh, of hanging out in the Holy Land. It feels good. Uh, you're probably underselling it, but uh, we'll just stick with super sub for now. Again, okay. I appreciate it, and. Wanted to start out, obviously we'll get to some more Ohio State-centric stuff, but national championship game last night, Georgia, after 40 years, won another national title. It's been a long time coming for a team that uh, has really been in the upper echelon of college football, but the, the sort of story for Kirby Smart was that he wasn't able to get it done, couldn't beat Alabama, but won the big game last night. It was... I don't know, a bit of a, a boring first half if you're an offensive guy or girl, but I like the defense, hard hitting guys flying around, things like that kind of turned into a track meet in the last quarter and a half. But overall, Matt, what were your thoughts on the game? How much did you enjoy that? I mean, it was definitely a tale of two halves. The first half was 
pretty abysmal in terms of an entertainment entertaining television product there was a total of of uh, 15 points scored all of them on field goals not exactly fun and you're right the, the defenses were playing very well um lots of of pretty impressive plays in and around the line of scrimmage um but there wasn't a ton of drama and it wasn't exactly fun and i feel like one of the issues with the with the college football playoff is their game scheduling and if you're going to have mm-hmm. people watching a game that starts at or around or even after 8 p.m. Eastern time on a Monday night. It's got to be interesting. We just saw the 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 ratings just came out and it was the worst college football uh, playoff championship game rating other than last year, which was kind of a, a weird pandemic year. Other than that one, it was the lowest rated and significantly so. And I think that goes uh, a long way in terms of talking about the television product, talking about it being on a Monday night, but also talking about the first half of this game was not a lot of fun. Um, and even the second, uh, the third quarter wasn't super great. It was the fourth quarter when things started getting interesting. So um, to me, these were the two best teams all season. So it was good from a college football fan perspective to see these two teams face off against each other. The problem is, is who the two teams were. It didn't make it super interesting. I I did not care about a single storyline between these two teams. I would have liked to have seen Jamison Williams um, have a great game, and we can talk about his uh, Jamison Williams' injury. But I just... It was fine. The fourth quarter was exciting and thrilling and had some some great plays. But overall, I mean, I kind of was doing work and not super glued to to the set because it just wasn't that exciting of a game for the vast majority of it for me. Yeah, I found myself starting to doze off. I get up very early in the morning for work, so I was definitely struggling at halftime. Um, kind of woke up for the Katy Perry music video, not, but um, got very <laughs> did you just, interesting later Did you on. just throw in a not? Like, is this 1996 or something there? I, I, mean, <laughs> I, I hit you with like a, what, what a Wayne's World reference or something yeah. like that. Matt, do you think that some of the low viewership numbers and kind of lower interest is due to the redu- uh, the redundancy of the teams in Alabama being in once again playing against another SEC team? Yeah, I mean, look, the fact that Nick Saban's team was playing for another national championship certainly takes away the storyline of like an up-and-coming team. Maybe they are the Death Star in college football. And to be honest with you, I was rooting for Alabama last night. I used to live in North Georgia. I despise the University of Georgia and its fans as much as I do Penn State <laughs> and Michigan. So I wanted anybody to win other than Georgia. Um, I also respect the hell out of Nick Saban, former Ohio State assistant, by the way. Um, so I, yeah, I, mean, I think so. I think it also has to do with the fact that um, Athens, Georgia and Tuscaloosa, Alabama are like 250 miles apart, so it was very much uh, a segment of the population that was uh, kind of overlapping, so you weren't getting a team from the West Coast and a team from the Midwest, so you're having wide swaths of people watching. Um, It's teams that have already played once this year in a not super competitive game. Granted, it went the other way the last time they played, but I certainly think that there's an Alabama fatigue, there's an SEC fatigue, and even a Georgia fatigue. I mean, they had this matchup in 2017 uh, for the national championship game, so it's not even the first time that these two teams have played in the last, you know, five years or whatever. So I definitely think that's the case. I also feel like it, it, the game happened on January 10th after the semifinals happened on December 31st. That's way too long. That's unnecessary. Um, obviously, I know 
that you can't always have it exactly a week apart because New Year's Day or even New Year's Eve when they decide to stupidly have it the games on New Year's Eve, you you have to stagger them because of what day of the week that the holiday falls on. But like it's too long, people lose interest. In my opinion, the semifinals should happen like the day before or the day after Christmas, and then the national championship game should happen on like the second or third. Um, I just think that the college football playoff, in a lot of ways, has screwed this up. Whether that's in how many teams are included, which teams are included, how teams get included, when the games are, all of that stuff. I just feel like the majority of the CFP has been incredibly mismanaged from day one, other than the fact that Ohio State won the first one. That was perfect, and I have no notes on that. But beside that, it's a little bit of a mess, and I feel like they keep shooting themselves in the foot every single year. Yeah, I agree with a lot of those points. I think the redundancy, the timing, all of those things that you hit on definitely contributed to the sort of lower interest in this game. I also think that, and it's sort of odd to say this, but I think the venue, you know, the game is built for TV or it should be built for TV. And Lucas Oil Stadium is a great venue, uh, especially here in the Midwest where I'm at. But for the college football landscape, you know, I, I just feel as if these games are are better, bigger when they're in these other venues. I know that it's not played at the Rose Bowl anymore, but whether it's in Atlanta, uh, in the Mercedes-Benz Dome, New Orleans, same stadium, um, things like that. So, you know, again, no knock on Indianapolis. I've been to Lucas Oil Stadium. I used to go to the Big Ten Championship game seemingly every year. It's a great place to watch a football game. And it doesn't it, it shouldn't really affect the TV product. But I wonder if that also sort of played a role that it was in a non-traditional venue for a lot of folks. Well, I mean, Indianapolis is a host of a lot of major sporting events, whether that's the Super Bowl, the Final Four, and now the college football uh, playoff championship. To me, I just... I would want this game to be outdoors. Um, I think it's a better environment. It it looks cooler. I think they should play the national championship game at the Rose Bowl every year. Um, It should just be like the home. I agree with you more. I love the Rose Bowl. But but I feel about Lucas Oil Stadium for the college football playoff championship, much like I do with having the final four at like the Alamo Dome. That's not what it's built for. And obviously it's a little different because the Alamo Dome, they like have to reconfigure the whole thing to get basketball there. And Lucas Oil Stadium is a football stadium, but it's a pro stadium. And there's just a different feel. And there's a reason that I don't watch a bit of NFL football um, other than like the red zone. I just, I just don't care. It doesn't, and I don't enjoy it. I don't do fantasy football anymore. I used to, but I don't anymore. I just, I'll throw on red zone and watch that. Um, and that's about it because it is, there is such a different feel between the, the fun and the silliness and the, the pomp and circumstance of college football compared to kind of like the sterile cookie cutter nature of the NFL. And I feel like when you watch a game at Lucas Oil Stadium, same thing with Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, the Superdome feels the same way to me, even though that's a much more historic venue than those two, you know, newer places. Um, it just feels like it could be anywhere. Like it doesn't matter. It's it's the same place everywhere. Same thing with Jerry's world. They're all great. And I'm sure they're great places to watch a game. They're filled with all the bells and whistles. But for me, it's just like, meh. It's like when three river stadium and riverfront stadium and veteran stadium in Philadelphia were essentially the exact same ballpark um, for the mm-hmm. reds, Phillies and pirates. It was like, 
There's nothing that much different about these stadiums. It's fine. They're all serviceable. Um, but for me, I want to watch a college football game in a venue that feels like a college football stadium. And it doesn't actually have to be a college football stadium. I think some of the outdoor places that they've had games in um, uh, in, in California and even down here, I, I, like the this the what do they call it now? The Hard Rock Stadium in Miami. Like yep. those feel like cool um, outdoor college venues. And even though they might not actually be college venues, they have a feel of a place where you can go and have a really cool tailgate. You're going to see a marching band. That's what I want to feel. And I just don't get that vibe from most of the places where they play the CFP championship game. So I think you actually summed up my feelings better than I could. Um, you really hit it on the head. I like those outdoor kind of cool, distinct venues. Whereas Lucas Oil, we we know we both like it. It's a it's a good place to sort of watch a game and see a game. But there's nothing super special and unique about it. So I think you summed it up really well. As far as the game itself, I, I want to ask you: Did the best team win? And depending on your answer. Um, do you think Alabama wins or do you think this was any different with a healthy Jamison Williams, uh, the guy that you mentioned previously as we kind of opened up this pod? I mean, I feel like if Jamison Williams and who was, you know, better than I do, who was their other top receiver who was out um, for the championship? They had game? John Mechie out. Yep. Yeah, John Mechie. Yeah. So those two guys were the Alabama offense on throughout this entire season. The fact that they didn't have either of them for the duration of the game and Jamison Williams only had four receptions um, on four targets, by the way, um, it, that really hamstrung Saban and, and Bryce Young and really led to them not having much of an offense. So I don't know if you can say that the best team in the country is a team that only has the ability to move the ball and score points if if there's two guys on the field that that can do it. But I also don't look at, at Georgia and think, wow, this team is an elite team. I mean, they're a great defense, um, but Stetson Bennett had 224 yards passing. They only had a total of 140 yards rushing. And I know the defenses on both sides are really good, but like they, Georgia might be the best team of this year, but by no means are they a team that matches up with like, uh, the Joe Burrow's LSU team or last year's Alabama or, of course, Ohio State's 2014-15 uh, team. Like, it, they're, a, they're a deserving national champion. I think they were the best team from the start of the year to the finish of the year. But to me, they're fine. Like, they're not a team that's going to be remembered in five years. You're going to be, in five years, you're going to be like, oh, who won the 2021-2022 uh, national championship? And it's going to take you a while to remember anybody's name on this team, uh, unless you're like a huge Georgia fan or somebody from this team comes to your pro team. It's just, they're fine. Yeah, they're the best. I think they are the be legitimately the best team in the country this year. But they're ultimately just a fine solid, good college football team that I think in many other years in the playoff era probably doesn't even make it to the playoffs or gets bounced in the semifinal by a more complete team. I would say I have to agree with that. I think that you made a good point that I think I agree that Georgia was the best team this year. And I don't think the outcome would have been any different if Jamison Williams had remained healthy for the entirety of the game. I think that they had six points while he was on the field. They may have added the third field goal. I don't recall. Um, yes, he had four catches on four targets. He had the big one deep and, and who knows all he needs is a couple opportunities to break the game wide open. He is the king of the long touchdown, the over the top guy, or even, you know, catching something shallow and just using his speed to turn it into a 50, 60 yard, 70 yard touchdown, something like that. But Georgia more or less held their own on defense while he was in the game. 
They totally. contained the run very well. So I, I think it may have been a little bit tighter, but this game was tight really until the fourth quarter. And that pick six really put it over the top, obviously with less than a minute to go. That minute to go, that was obviously the end of the game. But to your point, I think that Georgia's problem, and it's not a problem for them, they won the national title, but when it comes to, you know, the, or how often or how much are people going to remember this Georgia team is Georgia was the better team. Alabama had the better players, in my opinion. They had Bryce Young, the Heisman Trophy winner. They had Jamison Williams, John Mechie, uh, Will Anderson probably should have been in New York for the Heisman ceremony, in my opinion. So, They had the names. And to your point, Georgia had a former walk-on quarterback who threw for 200 yards in the game, Stetson Bennett. Their best player on offense is probably their freshman tight end, Brock Bowers, although I like their running backs. They just didn't do a ton in this game. But I think that's sort of some of it robbed some of the intrigue because Georgia's best players are really on defense. Uh, Jordan Davis. Their linebackers, I, I'm coming up with Quay, Quay Walker. I'm like forgetting their main guy. His name is just escaping me right now. But Georgia does it with defense and they're really strong one through 11 when those guys are on the field. But, you know, in breaking down the game, I, I do think Georgia was the best team on the field last night. They were able to pressure Bryce Young and force him into some yeah. poor throws, which we're not used to seeing from him. Contain the Bama run game, which was not great all year, really. And with the exception of one drive during the second half, Brian Robinson didn't do a whole heck of a lot for them to help his quarterback. And on the other side of the ball, I think Stetson Bennett performed admirably. He did just enough. But during the first half, I thought he was really killing them. And it wasn't it wasn't all his fault, though. I didn't love Georgia's offensive game plan During the first half, they did not establish the run. Granted, they didn't have a ton of success when they tried, but you saw what happened in the second half. Zamir White came out in the second half, had a couple good runs. James Cook obviously had the long one later in the game. And I I thought Georgia needed to work the quick passing game. And they had a lot of play action, some boots outside, and they were longer developing plays. And Stetson Bennett needed to get the ball out of his hands. He threw a beautiful ball to George Pickens in the first half. He had the long one to Mitchell in the second half for the touchdown, but I wanted to see them work the quick passing game better to keep the pressure off of Stetson Bennett and let him get the ball out to some other playmakers. Brock Bowers didn't do a ton and sort of that, and some of that was due to Alabama's defense. But as we got into the second half, the the breaking point or what I thought was going to be the breaking point is when Georgia got the interception at Alabama's 43, they had run the ball to open the second half, but then on that drive, pass, 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 three straight yeah. passing plays. Yep. For three yards. And they had to punt. And I said to myself, I said, this is probably over unless Georgia gets a big play on special teams or something like that. And then what happens, right? I, I'm not a, uh, a psychic or anything like that, but They got the blocked field goal, and then it was sort of back on after that. Stetson Bennett found a rhythm, got it to his guys. And I think Alabama's defense wore down a little bit during the second half, which was somewhat surprising to me. They've got a lot of veterans and a lot of good players, but I think their best players are in the front seven. When you talk about some of their D linemen, they've obviously got Will Anderson. Christian Harris was great in this game. He had three sacks, but I thought they wore down a little bit. 
the secondary wasn't able to force a turnover, which if there was a prop that I would have known, I probably would have bet on Alabama forcing an interception or two. They got the weird kind of funky fumble that I don't know was a fumble. Yeah. But Setson Bennett, other than that, played a pretty clean game. And the Alabama wide receivers, the young guys that came in later, struggled a little bit, couldn't come down with some contested balls. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that it was a great game in totality. Georgia sort of figured some things out. And so I think that they were a very deserving and resilient champion. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like they they deserve to win. They played the better game, obviously blew up in the fourth quarter going for 20 points, which was a full touchdown more than they'd scored in the first three quarters. Um, before we move off this game, though, I do want to mention, and hopefully I can explain this so the people understand. Bryce Young, Heisman Trophy winner, he averaged 10 and a half yards per completion on Monday night. He averaged negative 10.8 yards per run. Now, of course, those are those are sacks, but he, on average, he averaged more negatively as a runner than he did positively as a passer, which is nothing like that doesn't matter. There's that doesn't mean anything. I just thought it was pretty damn funny that he only averaged 10 and a half yards per pass uh, per completion and 10.8 per official rushing attempt. Now, of course, the college football rushing slash sack yardage stats are idiotic and need to be changed, but just Mm -hmm. a weird kind of quirk that I, uh, that I picked out in the stats. Like that's never a good recipe for success. If you're a quarterback and you need to be 100% to win a game. Yeah. And he's an athletic guy, but when you're trying to get outside against, and I had to pull them up because their names were escaping me, but N'Kobe Dean, Channing Tindall and Nolan Smith and Quay Walker, guys like that, it's really difficult to do. I, I, there are very few, if any, quarterbacks in the country that can get around those guys if they've got anything resembling a free rush. And Georgia blitzed their linebackers quite a bit. Um, Tyndall had a sack or two. Nicobe Dean was all over the place. Nolan Smith also. Um, Georgia's strength sort of overwhelmed, I think, Alabama's offense. And it hurt to not have those wide receivers out there. But to your point, when Bryce Young was trying to make a play or get outside, or really even when he was in the pocket at certain times, he was rushed, couldn't get away. And the pressure was on him all night. So I just think that was a really impressive, not necessarily a game plan, because I feel like that was George's game plan all year, but a really impressive performance by that unit to put the heat on Bryce Young. He threw for over 300 yards, but that was really due to lack of being able to run the ball. He sort of had free reign to throw the ball a ton. I don't have how many pass attempts he had in front of me, but the two interceptions, I think he had five all year, right? And he threw two. They were bad interceptions, like really bad from him, especially. So I'm with you. Best team won, best performance of the night, obviously. And Kirby Smart got it done. Credit to him. Kudos to him. I I thought he was a guy that sort of choked in big games from time to time. But he and his coaches got it done. Dan Lanning on defense, he's moving on to bigger and better things now. He's going to be the head coach at Oregon. They play Georgia next year, so that will be interesting. Don't they open the season with them? Yes, they do. Just like uh, Ohio State opens up against Notre Dame, great, and not the same thing. We've got Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame now there. So uh, some very interesting week one matchups next year. And we don't even know the other ones, the full slate. So 
Can't wait to get back to college football. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. As we kind of shift back towards Ohio State, which is what we want to talk about, I wanted to get into some of the recent Ohio State coaching moves. You and I have definitely not had an opportunity to talk about this. Gene and I have touched on the Jim Knowles part of it. But uh, recently, Brian Hartline received his promotion to passing game coordinator, surely a, uh, a pay bump to go with that. And today it was made official that Justin Fry is the new offensive line coach and I hope I'm getting this right. Associate head coach of offense, which I know you want to get into titles. I know you want to. I do. Um, But let's just kind of go one by one there. Brian Hartline, in my opinion, this was 1000% necessary and 1000% deserving for Hartline. I I would say without this move, I don't know that Brian Hartline's gone this year per se, but you know, the heat was on. You, You saw rumors that Notre Dame was interested in bringing Brian Hartline over to reunite with some of those past Ohio State coaches. He gets the bump to passing game coordinator. I I don't know how much that's going to mean in the long term, but just well-deserving. They needed to keep this guy around for his outstanding recruiting. He has built a wide receiver room unlike any other in the country. So super happy for him. And I, I think this was a long time gu- coming, but it's good to see made official in this capacity. Yeah, I have no idea how they're going to incorporate either another passing game coordinator, because that's kind of <laughs> what Ryan Day does. I don't know how they're going to inco- incorporate another associate head coach for offense, which, I mean, you've got an offensive coordinator. You also have Tony Alford, who is the assistant head coach for offense. Like, these titles don't mean much. They might come with a little bit more sway or a little bit more involvement in game planning. But these were to allow Heartline to get a pay bump and a raise on the resume for future consideration and to keep him in town. And it was for Justin Fry, who was the offensive coordinator at UCLA, to feel like he's not making a backwards move. It's semi-lateral now because of, of uh, you know, because of this title. So it's a little weird. It's fine. I mean, I wrote an article a couple weeks ago that I thought that Ryan Day needed, and this is not necessarily a, a, an indictment on Kevin Wilson, but I thought he needed to get rid of Kevin Wilson just because I don't think Ryan Day needs to be calling plays anymore. So what I was hoping was that Kevin Wilson would get a head coaching job. He'd move on. They'd bring in a young dynamic, creative, offensive mind who can also be a play caller. They looks like they decided to go the other route. They decided to keep Kevin Wilson to do, I 
I don't know exactly what he does. And again, not a knock on him. I'm just literally not sure what he does in the, is it just a game plan? Because Day is clearly working with the passing game. He's the one calling plays. If if Kevin Wilson is just doing game planning in tight ends, oof, that's that's not a great look for him. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, I think it was absolutely one hundred percent necessary that they kept Brian Hartline. You can't let him go. I imagine in the next three to five years, he will absolutely be Ohio State's at least co-offensive coordinator. If he's not. Something has gone wrong. He, you have to keep him here as long as you possibly can. Um, I think Justin Fry is an interesting uh, addition. I think that he has shown at UCLA in his short time there that he can build a running game based off of a solid offensive line without having big-time recruits that he presumably will be able to get at Ohio State and will have already uh, in his rec- in his room when he gets there. So I think there's a good hires. I don't, again... I'm not super worried about the uh, the titles as long as they're being paid well and everybody kind of is is good with that. Let's go. I'm 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 happy with these moves so far. Before we get to Justin Fry, I want to ask you something specific to Brian Hartline. Do you think that he can or wants to be an offensive coordinator slash head coach, or do you think that he's happy being very 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 good? At his one thing, I guess, like, what do you see his future trajectory, even though you sort of hinted at it already? I mean, look, if he doesn't want to be an offensive coordinator, just keep paying him and making up new titles to keep him in Columbus. That's fine. (laughs) But if he does want to move up the ladder, I think he needs to eventually be a co-offensive coordinator, an offensive coordinator. Um, But I don't know. I mean, like, here's the thing. You don't get to where he got to in his playing career without being super competitive. So I would imagine that there's part of him that wants to keep challenging himself and wanting to get to the next level of his new chosen profession. But I also know how much Ohio State means to him. I also know that he has young kids and maybe he doesn't want to move around. Similar things that were said by Ryan Day. So... I I could imagine a world in which he's like, you know what? I'm cool being here in Columbus, whether that's as the wide receivers coach or offensive coordinator for my career. But I, I kind of also think that there's that, that whole Michael Jordan thing about like, everything's a competition for guys who play at the elite level. And obviously I'm not comparing Brian Hartline to Michael Jordan in terms of on field (laughs) slash court um, abilities, but he's still a pretty dang good NFL wide receiver. And, and I, I don't see him losing that competitiveness. Um, Now, granted, his work with the players is competitive, how the team does is competitive. So maybe that's enough for him. I would just imagine that it's for guys as hot as he is, they are few and far between in terms of who doesn't want to move up. So maybe he's different because he made a boatload of cash um, and invested it wisely from his playing career. He's going to make a pretty hefty chunk of change, especially with this raising promotion from Ohio State. So maybe he's happy with that if he is. I thank thank Woody for that because I I don't want him to feel like he's got to go take a job at like I don't know Nebraska and and rehabilitate that program or you know something. So I I I don't know. I don't have a good vibe on that, but I feel like he's pretty content with where he is now. He's taken his time and despite the fact that I think he's the best wide receiver coach in the country, it he hasn't been the wide receiver coach for that long. Like, you know, it's been the 2018 season he got thrust in there with all the 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 Zach Smith fiasco. Then so he had 2019, 2020, 2021. Really four seasons at most he's been the wide receivers coach and that's 
it's pretty impressive to be able to achieve what he's achieved. So if he wants to stay in that role, I'm ready to give him a an Ohio State wide receivers coach for life contract. Um, but I that would be a surprise to me, I think, a little bit if he didn't want to climb the ladder either in Columbus or elsewhere. You hit the nail on the head. A lifetime contract, I think, should be in order. I, I think his absolute floor is that of a Larry Johnson. Granted, Larry Johnson's been doing this for decades now, but he is one of, if not the most respected defensive line coaches that's ever existed uh, or ever been in the college game, but he has kind of stayed at that level. He has occasionally taken on uh, some of the play calling input um, or at least been involved in the game planning of things, but he's been a longtime defensive line coach. And so I think that's Brian Hartline's floor. And if that's all he ever is for decades, like Larry Johnson, sign me up. I'm with you on the lifetime yeah. contract. So getting to Justin Fry now, bringing him over as the offensive line coach and the long laborious title. Um, obviously, Fry is very familiar with Ryan Day from their days together at Temple and Boston College. Mm -hmm. Fry was also working under a mentor of Ryan Day's and Chip Kelly at UCLA. He has had a lot of success in the run game as an involved coach, uh, as an offensive line coach and offensive coordinator. You know, I don't remember, nor did I pay attention to his Temple days, but I do remember at Boston College, he coached the offensive line when they were blocking for Andre Williams. Andre Williams was sort of a bust in the NFL, but at the time at Boston College, he was one of the most prolific college football running backs um, of the last couple of decades, really. He was there and very productive for three or four years, had a ton of yards, and then sort of busted out with the New York Giants. But Fry's guys led the charge for him, and uh, UCLA has been very good running the ball. In 2021, they finished 17th nationally as far as rushing yards per game. They put up 215 in the Pac-12, so he can call plays. He obviously knows how to coach the offensive line. Um, What do you think of the Fry hire? Um, you know, I think it's interesting because obviously, like you said, they finished, uh, I'm looking, I see 14th in rushing offense, 13th in scoring offense in the low thirties for both sacks allowed and tackles for loss allowed. Um, not as good, but decent. Um, but they never, they never had the elite talent. Recruiting at UCLA right, right. is is tough because the powers that be there are not the types of folks that ha- they have across town at USC. They don't really care about football, so you're never going to have as good of facilities. The coaches are never as well paid. Um, so I, I, I think a lot of people were concerned about the fact that if you look down his recruiting resume, it's never been great, especially at UCLA. But that's kind of par for the course with the Bruins. So I think the fact that he was able to have a really productive offense and especially in the running game and offensive line is is encouraging. Ohio State is always going to have better talent, uh, access to talent than UCLA. And I think coming in, even though I felt like the, the offensive line underachieved in 2021, uh, significantly in the running game especially, um, I think that he's going to come in and have have his fingerprints all over this. He's going to be able to mold that offensive line in a way that that kind of fits what he and Ryan Day want to do. And I expect this to be a significant upgrade for Ohio State in terms of the running game. I know Greg Studrawa 
you know, he was one of the guys that I thought needed to to leave as well. But, you know, he he hasn't been bad for Ohio State in his career. He's no, had a ton all. of really good guys come through. I, I feel like the all tackles line, as a lot of people kind of predicted, wasn't a great idea. And it hurt in the running game, because if you have four tackles across the line, they're not used to, to run blocking. They're not used to getting to the second level and trying to block out. Uh, linebackers or all of those things that that it didn't work and I think that is probably the nail in his coffin along with the fact that even though he's gotten some really good offensive linemen especially he's been able to keep the best ones in state he hasn't landed a bunch of huge guys outside of the footprint some here or there but uh, I think it'll be interesting to see what a guy who knows Ryan Day well who comes with a little bit different perspective will be able to do with a talented offensive line room like Ohio State has but I mean like I didn't watch a ton of UCLA football this year so I don't know a ton of details about him specifically but just looking at the numbers and knowing how important it is to have different uh, voices and changes of pace to rooms that get a little stagnant I I I can't imagine it gets worse Um, I would imagine that it just gets better because you're going to have guys who are that much more experienced. You're not counting on guys who haven't had opportunities. I think everybody who's going to be contending for a starting job has played a decent amount and might have been starters this past year. So I think they're only going to get better. um, And I'm excited to see how his involvement changes what I thought was a kind of underwhelming running game, despite the fact that I thought Travion Henderson was one of the best running backs in the country. Totally agree with that. I think that this is just Another example of Ryan Day putting more of his fingerprint on his coaching staff. He had a lot of Urban's guys, right? And mm-hmm. so eventually he's going to want to bring in his own. Justin Fry is one of those guys. I'm sure that he loves absolutely everything that Brian Hartline has done. So he gave him a bump. Who knows what other moves are going to happen? We'll get to the Knowles piece here at the end. But when it comes to this position group, I think that... I think Coach Studd was a good coach. I think he did some really good yeah. things here at Ohio State, and, and so I don't want to disparage him at all. I think that, unfortunately, the offensive line stagnated under uh, Coach Stud Rawa, and so I think that's where a new talent infusion was needed. You need to infuse talent through the players, but also through the coaches sometimes. And so I think this was just a prime example of that. Coach Stud brought in a lot of interior guys, especially, and those guys developed probably, well, not probably, much better than the tackles, in my opinion. But then in the last couple of years, you look at some of those guys. Uh, Dewan Jones exceeded expectations. Absolutely. Thayer Munford, Thayer Munford, I would say, stagnated. Nicholas Petit-Friere, He may or may not be a first-round draft pick. He was an All-American. But if I'm not mistaken, he was like the number one or two rated tackle coming out in his class. I mean, like he was an uber recruit. And I I don't know. He probably met expectations, but never, I don't think, became that. He's certainly not going to be a top five or top ten draft pick. You look at a guy like Paris Johnson, I think he has floundered a little bit, but I think he's been out of position. I think that Paris Johnson Jr. is going to be an awesome outside tackle when given the opportunity. So I think under Coach Studd, they just, like I said, I think they stagnated and and some guys failed to meet their large expectations. So I think that's what did it. And like you said, the game plan or the, the scheme this year, it just didn't work and they didn't really adapt after that. But I'm excited for Fry. I think that 
they now have a, a, a better mix of like experienced coaches and some of these new hungry guys, Justin Fry is going to want to prove himself. Coach Stud, it's not like he, he was out there sort of going through the motions, but sort of an older guy. And he had probably reached his career ceiling. I think that's fair to say. Who knows? Sky could be the limit for Justin Fry. And this is a step up for him and maybe a step to another another bigger job or another direction, something like that. So excited for that one. Both of those guys, Hartline and Fry, are on the offensive side of the ball. The last guy I wanted to hit on was Jim Knowles, the new defensive coordinator coming over from Oklahoma State. This is not a new hire. Uh, it's been sort of whispered for a number of weeks now, made official more recently. So really, I just want to get your thoughts. W what do you think of the Knowles hire and how excited are you for the future under Jim Knowles? I think this is the absolute home run hire of all of college football's offseason. The, okay. re the reason is it's been very clear from the beginning that Ryan Day is an offensive coach. We knew that. That's what he did you know, under Urban Meyer. Um, so it very much was a thing where you needed to have somebody who could be the coach of the defense and you could just l turn it over to him. Um, I don't think that they've had that, even with uh, Greg Madison and especially with Kerry Combs. Um, I don't think that the Ohio State has had that guy that you could just trust to say, here's the defense, make it in your image and likeness. That really has not been the case in, in Ryan Day's time here. In a guy like Jim Knowles, you've got this kind of like mad scheming scientist who locks himself in his office for two days at the beginning of the week and magically appears cigar <laughs> in in mouth, you know, vegan, you know, food uh, all over his office, not wearing shoes, comes out with a game plan and the game plan is to be aggressive. So I think that that it's uh, I think it's it's perfect. I, I'm a little interested to see what he does with his staff because I feel like we still need some more changes on that staff to really get to the type of defense that he likes to run. But I, I mean, I don't know how you can be upset about a guy who has the success that he has had. He was the defensive coordinator of the year uh, this past season at Oklahoma State. He's a guy who even to the day he left Oklahoma State, he was not only credited as the defensive coordinator, but also the linebackers coach. So he, that's an area of concern for Ohio State. Um, so I feel like it, this could not have been a better situation for the Buckeyes to get a guy who addresses the issues both in terms of positionally, even though Al Washington is still technically the linebacker coach for now, and but then also mindset-wise. I wrote about it literally every week this season that Ohio State has to let their, their athletic super stud players go out there and play. And it felt like for the past two seasons, and honestly three of the last four seasons, um, you know, as, as long as Jeff Halfley wasn't the defensive coordinator, the defense played confused it played timid it played like they weren't exactly sure what their responsibilities were and it hurt it was bad i don't think anyone's going to have that issue with jim Knowles. now his defense is not simple by any means but it is one that values aggression and i feel like that is going to be a boon when you look at all of the top talent that ohio state has brought into columbus over the past few seasons so i feel like this is a home run hit 
I hope that Ryan Day turns the defense over in full to Knowles and lets him kind of build the staff as he wants, to move guys around as he wants, to call plays as he wants. If he does that, I feel like Ohio State will be a national championship contender next year, like not just in the same way that they are every year, but like legitimately, I think they're the national championship favorites if the defense can make the steps forward that I think Knowles uh, is capable of pushing them towards. Yeah, I really like two things about this hire. I like that Ohio State went out and they got the big fish. They didn't settle. They got aggressive. Totally. Uh, t- tons of schools and tons of teams wanted Jim Knowles. They wanted to get him out of Stillwater into their program. And Ohio State went and got him. Um, you know, maybe if a, a Brett Venables had stayed or something like that, maybe he would have been more sought after. But Knowles was the guy. And so they went out and got him. The other thing that I'm excited about, and it's a point that you brought up, Ohio State for the last couple of seasons, they have not had that general of the defense. I do think that Ryan day will hand over control. I think he's going to be forced to, or, you know, even internally, he's going to say, I have to do this because I'm an offensive genius. I've now got arguably a defensive genius. I need to cede control because I've seen the results. So, and I think I even brought this up with Gene on a past pod, like he can be your general of the defense. He doesn't need your help. He'll probably ask for it, or maybe he won't. I don't know, but you can give control to him and let him do his thing. And I'm excited about what he brings. I, I'm excited to see a, a defense that mixes it up and is versatile, not as a result of looking lost. You know, I, I don't want to see guys out there in a different formation because they don't know better. I want to see them out there in a different formation because it is by design. And Jim Knowles runs kind of a 4-2-5, but kind of a 3-3-5. So the secondary, I don't think there will be a ton of change. There will definitely be some learnings that need to take place, but I think that he can work with that. And then that, that front seven or front six, really, we may see a lot of change, but I think it's going to be change for the better when it comes to scheme and game plan and things like that. And I love his aggressiveness. I don't think that... I don't think Ohio State was super aggressive with their linebackers this year. Some of that may just have been, you know, the lack of experience and lack of talent. I don't know, but I I do believe in my heart of hearts that the talent is there. They have to be put in a better position and that didn't happen this year. So I'm excited about everything that he brings to the table. I want to ask you about the staff. Do you think that Al Washington and Kerry Combs stick around? I'm assuming Larry Johnson does because he's another guy, as long as he wants to do it, you let him do it. Do you think Al Washington and Kerry Combs stick long-term? Not even long-term. Do you think that they are around for the next one, two, three years? Man, that's tough to say. I'll start, I'll start this way. Let's just talk about 2022. I think Al Washington is staying um, Mm -hmm. because I think if he was going to leave, it would be leaving for another college job. And unless he goes to Georgia or Alabama, um, I think he would have taken that job already. So I, I think that he's staying. And Jim Knowles, despite the fact that he was the the tactical linebacker coach at Oklahoma State, he probably wants somebody um, to handle that so he doesn't have to. Uh, Al Washington, despite the fact that there have been issues with the linebackers since he got to Columbus, he did bring in two highly uh, you know recruited guys in Gabe Powers and C.J. Hicks. 
granted, both Ohio guys. Um, but I don't I don't think anyone's ever said a bad thing about him. He's a very good recruiter. Everybody seems to like him. So and, you know, despite the fact that we were stuck with like multiple years of tough Borland under his direction, Pete Werner ended up being a pretty solid linebacker. And I think there's something to be said for the development of Steel Chambers and um, for Cade Stover, who made the move just for the bowl game. Like the guys who were offensive players, you know, just weeks before their first game as a linebacker. And this shows that the fact that they both played well, either in one game or one season, is encouraging. Tommy Eichenberg made improvements this year. So I I would not have been upset if Al Washington moved on, but I'm not upset that he's staying either. Kerry Combs, I think he might be more likely to leave, even though I think he does stay, mainly because I think he has NFL options that if he wants to go back to the NFL, if he wants to go back to Tennessee, they're still in the playoffs. So they're not going to make any coaching change announcements until their seasons are officially over. So I feel like it might be a while until we know for sure if Kerry Combs is staying or going, much like it took us a while to find out that he was coming back when he was with the Titans in the first place. So, uh, you know, I think that whatever Kerry Combs decides, if he does stay in Columbus, it's going to be in a different role, obviously, because Jim Knowles is there. I know how I would like to see him used. Um, I think he still has incredible value. He's still a phenomenal cornerbacks coach. He's still a great recruiter. Everybody, um, all the guys that we talked to, uh, talked to and heard at the end of the season raved about working with Kerry Combs and talked about his professionalism and how he still loved being around the guys, still loved Ohio State. So if he was willing to kind of be the, the cornerbacks coach, maybe take over special teams because he was the special teams coordinator at one point under Urban Meyer um, and, and, you know, find another role for Parker Fleming either at Ohio State or somewhere else. I mean, he's an offensive guy anyway. That opens up another spot to bring in a safety coach, um, which is very important in Jim Knowles' defense. Like, it's a very yeah, it different is. way. They can run five safeties at a time. So I think having Kerry Combs focus on the cornerbacks and special teams while bringing in someone specifically to work with the safeties, I think that's the best way to go about it. Um, however, this shakes out. I think we need to have somebody on the staff who has worked with Jim Knowles in the past, whether that's directly or at least with his scheme. So maybe it's someone on his tree. So maybe somebody who worked for Knowles hired this person somewhere else. Um, that's fine. But somebody who knows this system, I think will be important to kind of make that transition. But I think at this point, Al Washington staying, I'm, I would guess Kerry Combs stays, but like his situation is a little more fraught because I think there's probably a little bit more ego from the demotion in there. So who knows? I, I, I at this point, I, I, I don't know. I don't have a good feel on that, but I could see it going either way for Combs. But I feel like Washington's here for at least one more season. OK, that's interesting. I think there's just so much uncertainty that I, I don't even know that I could venture a guess. I, I could see myself. Yeah, that's why I was it, hemming and hawing a lot. It's like, ah, I don't know. Yeah. As far as those two guys go, I'm with you. I think Al Washington brings value. The, the linebackers have underperformed, but. You know, he's talked about as this real like leader of man. He's a vocal guy. He's a passionate guy. So I'd like to see him rebound. And Kerry Combs, I love Kerry Combs. I do not love him as a defensive coordinator, but I love him as an Ohio State coach in some capacity. You know, yeah. the juice, the energy, just the enthusiasm, the love that he has for Ohio State. I'd love to see him be comfortable in that secondary and slash maybe special teams role, because I do think the special teams could be better. And if that's something that he wants to take on again, I think that that's a great point by you. That's something that I had forgotten. I, I think that could work out really well, but to your point about 
Jim Knowles wanting to bring over somebody who he's worked with before. I, that cannot be slept on. I think that's very important for a guy that's coming over who now has the only, you know, the voice in the defensive room. He's going to want some guys that he's familiar with eventually, or at least a guy, a right-hand guy, a right-hand man that he can kind of run things through and talk about some past experiences. So I think that part of it is interesting, whether it's like you said, a safety coach or something like that, even at an analyst level, you know, they had Paul Rhodes this year. Maybe Jim Knowles is able to bring over an analyst type guy to fill a role like that, to help his transition. So I think there's still some uncertainty and some things to fold out to unfold, but I also wouldn't be surprised if this today right now is the exact coaching staff that they roll into next season with. And I think it's hard to argue that it got better. Right. I think we can both it's hard agree to argue there. against that. You mean? Yeah. 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 I'm yeah. sorry. It is hard to argue against the fact that this staff as a whole got better. So I think these three moves um, only add to, Ryan Day's experience and him continuing to grow. And I think that the overarching or overlying theme here is I think Ohio State is going to be very hungry heading into next season. And with these new coaches coming over and the bad taste in their mouth of losing to that team up north, I I think these are all positive off-season developments with still a lot of time left to go. But, um, you know, now that we've covered the coaches, Matt, that's really all I had for the pod. Is there anything else that you wanted to hit on or talk about or kind of plug for the, the rest of the week moving forward? Just don't sleep on the men's basketball team. I, I know that they are always a roller coaster, but I love this team. I've loved all Holtman, Holtman's teams. Like, I think he just gets a lot out of these guys. They're fun to watch. They can be frustrating as hell. I get that. But I think with... EJ Liddell getting healthy after his bout with COVID, Malachi Branham coming into his own, presumably Justice Suing and Seth Towns rejoining the team at some point. I think this team's going to be a lot of fun down the stretch, and they've already shown that they can knock off big teams. Uh, they've beaten Wisconsin. They've beaten Duke. Like I, I think this team's going to be a lot of fun. So football season might be over, but that basketball team is going to be sneaky good, and I think this is finally the year that Chris Holtman gets out of the first weekend in, uh, in the tournament. I like that prediction and I'll, I'll jump on board with you. I really like watching this team play as well. I think EJ Liddell, if he keeps playing the way that he has so far is, I don't know about shoe in, but he's definitely going to be under all American consideration. And oh yeah, I, I, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I wrote in a piece a while back that Malachi Branham's development could make or break this team or take them to another level. And that's what he's done is he has taken his game to another level. We saw him score a bunch in high school. We knew he was capable. Now he's playing with confidence and he seems like that, that running mate for EJ Liddell. He's not the same player as Dwayne Washington, but he's the same potential caliber of scorer. So I think they're going to be really good moving forward. The I or the Indiana loss Whatever. I I sort of throw that out the window, but I think as a whole, they've played really well. And I'm excited to talk more and more about this team. Um, The bucket heads on our channel do a ton of this stuff. They're great. Their pods are always really good and in depth and they probably know more about basketball than I will ever know. You and me combined. Like we don't like one of them knows more than you and me combined. I feel like they're great. Yeah, but I'm going to do my best and I can't wait to talk about those guys. 
you know, as we close out, Matt, I appreciate the heck out of you coming on. Your input is always awesome. Uh, I hope that you guys go and you find all of Matt's stuff on Land Grant Holy Land. He is the man. Um, and so until next time, I, I assume Gene will be back with us. Looking forward to that. Go and like, rate, subscribe to hang out in the Holy Land. We appreciate you guys. As always, interact with us on social media. And uh, so for Matt Tamanini, I am Josh Dooley, and we will talk to you guys next time.